and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rui McKenzie, a science writer at TN, and today I'm joined by my colleagues Molly Campbell and Laura Lansdowne. How are you both doing? Good, thank you. Yeah, pretty good. I am well, thank you. Excellent. So we read about a lot of different science and we use this podcast to show off some of the most interesting research we've written about or reported and today's discussion is going to be on precision medicine or personalized medicine. Laura and Molly look after our cancer and genomics communities respectively where this is a big deal so they'll probably take the lead on the discussion but I thought I'd give a short intro into what personalized medicine is. I can't find a better explanation for the drive towards precision and personalized medicine than that given by the Jackson Laboratory on their website, which goes something like this. Would a teenage boy buy the same clothes as his grandmother? Probably not. But when they get sick, they're likely to receive the same medical treatment, same diagnosis, same care, despite their many, many differences. And so, as the lab says, well, everyone else. Medicine has advanced a huge amount in the last hundred years or so. We understand far, far more about diseases than at any point in history. But where medicine has potentially been lacking is in a deeper understanding of how different bodies respond to those diseases. Uh, this has been highlighted by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm sorry to bring it up. I'm sorry, but it is relevant. It raises a really classic example of disease that needs a personalized approach to combat. It manifests in some people as a really nasty lung disease and in others as a asymptomatic like cough. Asking why this might be is a hugely important research goal in that field. But long before coronavirus was uh, was plaguing the earth, personalized medicine was a cornerstone of cancer care. Uh, Laura, maybe you could start us off with a reintroduction to how uh, personalized medicine is used in, in cancer treatment. Absolutely. So I would say, you know, to echo what Rui said, like it's probably one of the the fields that has kind of led the way in precision or personalized medicine. Um, and there are a number of cancers that are obviously already benefiting from personalized medicine. So breast cancer, colorectal cancer, lung cancer, melanoma, these are, you know, probably the the, the, the key examples where it's kind of in action already. Um, you've probably heard of the drug Herceptin. Um, so in about 20 to 25% of breast cancers, um, they have an overexpression of human epidermal growth factor receptor, so the HER2 receptor. Um, and if they, if a patient is identified as having HER2 positive breast cancer, um, there are therapies like Herceptin that are targeted therapies that will be more efficacious in that population. So there are, you know, that's one example of, of, of a personalised medicine that's in practice and one that's probably quite well heard of. Um, Another example that I just wanted to share, because it's a really good example of, you know, personalised medicine, you can see as, you know, drugs working better for certain patients, but genomics also comes into play when, you know, some drugs might not work as well in certain patients. So in colorectal cancer, um, there's a specific receptor called epidermal growth factor receptor, which is often overexpressed. Um, and obviously you can then target drugs to kind of interact with that receptor um, kind of inhibit it and then that will stop cancer cells um, spreading it will Im impact the survival of the cancer cell angiogenesis so like the formation of blood vessels around a tumor and things like that 
Um, but in some patients, you also need to check whether they have um, a mutation in a different gene called the CRAS gene, because this CRAS protein actually acts downstream of this receptor in a signaling pathway. And if you have this mutated protein, even if you do target that ep epidermal growth factor receptor right at the top of that signaling pathway, this other CRAS one will work independently. And it means that that drug won't be effective in, in you know, stopping that cancer. So they can work, you know, two ways. It can it can give you an idea of how a drug will work better in some patients, but also you need to look out for how it can affect um patients negatively as well. Do you think do you think, Laura, that the reason cancer care is is so on the ball with this is is it something specific to cancer, do you think, or is it just because cancer research as a whole is a really well-funded, on-the-ball field that's advanced hugely in the last few decades? I think, you know, it, it does get a lot of attention. Um, I think as well, it gets a lot of publicity in media, which I think helps fuel people's interest in the area and fuel funding. Um, I think there's been quite a lot of innovation in like tumour biopsy and liquid biopsy and things. So it allows you to kind of, you know, harness these genetic approaches to look at, you know, tumour sequencing and cancer sequencing, which I think has kind of helped um, progress personalised medicine in that area. I think so. also to really add on to that, maybe one aspect that you could look at it is that speaking on very simplistic terms, cancer is effectively a disease that is a result of malfunctioning of the genome. Mm -hmm. um, whether that's because of obviously you have um, environmental influences as well, but I think as well because of the advances that we've seen sort of since the Human Genome Project completion, there's been so much attention focus there that I think it really quite naturally extends into cancer research too. Mm -hmm, definitely. And I also think like from a drug discovery angle um, and like, I guess, cell culture and cell models, there's a lot of interest in cancer. So when you think about organoids, which are like the, the lab, the 3D cultures of cells, they like, there's a lot of interest in, you know, patient derived organoids and that kind of are derived from tumours and things like that. So even from like a preclinical and kind of model standpoint, I think cancer gets a lot of attention. Um, so I think naturally when one thinks of personalised medicine, they are automatically, in those cases, thinking of genomics. But I think it's quite important to recognise that whilst genomics has enabled a lot of the initial advances that we've seen in personalised medicine, we are actually seeing that over recent years we're having really deep analytical technologies enable us to look at proteomics and metabolomics as well. Um, obviously we know that classically the genome is referred to as the blueprint of the cell and for us to be able to have the proteins that are the workhorses of the cell obviously the DNA has to be transcribed and it has to be translated um, and that produces proteins. And there's lots of different stages in there that can essentially go wrong, which is what we see often leads to human diseases. And then after we have proteins, obviously these proteins are involved in a lot of different cellular pathways, which produce a lot of different metabolites. Um, and so I think a really interesting aspect of personalised medicine sort of right now is this increased focus on proteins and metabolites. 
that we are seeing and how these might be able to develop sort of novel biomarkers for disease and even novel drug targets as we further our understanding of the proteome and the metabolome. So I just thought that was quite key to put in there. Definitely. Would you say, Molly, there's any other, I mean, proteomics and metabolomics will cover, you know, as you say, virtually all aspects of basic biology. Do you think there's any other particular medical areas that are going to really benefit from this in addition to cancer? I do think there is definitely an increased focus in neuroscience, Rory. I don't know if you'd agree, but I've seen quite a lot of studies recently that are looking at sort of the links between metabolomics and the brain and proteomics as well, and looking at how obviously the cell diversity in the brain is is massive. And thanks to the advances that we're seeing in post-science medicine and developing these deep analytical technologies, we're able to see how cells within the brain have different proteins expressed, have different metabolites expressed on the cellular level, as opposed to just a, a piece of brain tissue, so to speak, which I think is really interesting, especially sort of neurodegeneration, um, which is obviously an area which has been quite the struggle over recent years to, to sort of produce novel therapeutics for patients. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think this is good to highlight. This is more of my opinion, but that's the name of the podcast, so deal with it. Um, but my opinion is that our understanding of neurodegeneration is it's so much more basic than our understanding of, of cancer. You know, it's we've moved from questioning and and I think fearing why cancer happens now to a, a stage where we understand the basic processes involved in it, but we're also beginning to work out that it's not just cancer, it's all these different types of diseases that have similar processes and happen in similar patients, uh, but it's incredibly complex. And and by comparison, our understanding of, say, Alzheimer's disease, it remains a bit more basic. We, we really don't understand a lot of the, the basic disease processes in Alzheimer's. Uh, there's a lot of competing theories as to which particular protein pathway, for example, is the one that's really kicking off Alzheimer's in the brain. And I feel that we probably need to tackle those steps first, as was done in cancer, before we can start uh, to properly take advantage of personalised medicine. But as you say, Molly, that doesn't mean that we can't start and and take a look at how these diseases are more complicated than they first seem. There's a really recent study um, from researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital, which looked into 32 patients with Alzheimer's and examined uh their tau profiles now tau is one of these proteins i mentioned uh that is implicated in the spread of alzheimer's and it's probably the one that seems to associate most strongly with how bad diseases if tau is spread throughout your brain it's more likely you're going to have this uh, more severe memory loss more severe symptomology and by examining uh the the types of, of tau they their patients had in their brain the researchers were able to show that there was a, a huge range in the different kind of species of tau. So this is um, how the proteins are arranged, uh, whether they had a particular structure, uh, whether they had post-translational modifications. Molly, you can probably tell us a lot more about that. But it suggests that these different individuals, all of whom had open brackets, typical close brackets, Alzheimer's, actually had really distinct um biochemical pathways involved in how tau was spreading through their brain. 
So they actually say in their, their abstract that it raises the possibility that Alzheimer's, much like people with cancer, might have these different molecular drivers that ultimately result in a, a similar phenotype. And I think that's the key thing is that we, we just see the phenotype and it's so much harder to get into the, the bits that are causing that and the biochemical pathways that are causing that. Absolutely, Roy. And I think it's nice there that we've sort of got onto the topic of uh, brain science and cancer as well. We have a infographic at Technology Networks uh, called Genetics and Cancer. And we actually talk about how advances in next generation sequencing methods have really helped to understand cancer of the brain as well. And um, so we talk about a study that has used single cell RNA sequencing which is a form of transcriptome sequencing, um, and where researchers have essentially compared the transcriptional profile of healthy neural cells collected at different time points um, in embryonic development. Um, and they've basically been able to look at similarities between the cancer cells and certain progenitor cells in the brain to demonstrate that certain tumours actually appear a lot earlier than was initially first thought in utero. And so using that information, the researchers can then go on to develop sort of brackets, developmental checkpoints for cerebellar tumours, which I just think is absolutely fascinating how sort of all these different technologies are lending into these various different disciplines within medicine, all with essentially the same aim of aid in diagnostics, which is just amazing. It's really cool. Laura, did you have anything to add from that infographic? We can definitely share the link to that infographic in the the podcast so listeners can take a closer look but did you have anything else you wanted to highlight from it um so to be honest actually some of the information that i shared earlier on colorectal cancers um you know in there in detail so if you wanted to learn a bit more about you know the different types of of cancers that are kind of have targeted therapies um already um you know for them and also how they work and the different genes and proteins that are you know, in, impacted by those drugs. Um, yeah, definitely have a look because it's, um, yeah, it'll tell you a lot more than I can by chatting to you for a few minutes. I think, um, you know, I, I often speak to research scientists who say things along the lines of predicting the future is futile and don't do it. And luckily, I'm not a research scientist, so I can try and predict the future. Um, what do you guys think is going to be the next five, 10 years of precision medicine? How, how do you think it's going to advance? Uh, what's medical care going to look like in 2030, 2040? And how is, how is precision medicine going to be incorporated, do you guys think? I think there's some challenges and I think there's some great opportunities. So just considering how differently patients respond to different drugs, if healthcare professionals with, you know, a clear detailed understanding of you know what what this information um means had access to you know a, an individual's profile as such it could it could really revolutionize the way that we prescribe drugs you know consider optimal doses in different populations because you know so there's a clear example is alcohol like this you know people that is a drug you know it's a recreational drug but you know, different patients and different ethnicities respond very differently based on the way they metabolise it, the way their proteins work. Um, so I think, I don't know, there's evidence of this, but I think there's a lot of challenges as well because I think people are quite concerned about data security, like who would have information about their genomics, you know, their, their profile. So I think 
it's hard to tell, you know, what will happen really. I don't know, Molly, if you've got any thoughts on that. Um, I think there's sort of a different, there's several different ways that you can look at this really. Um, like Laura said, there are things that really need to be considered such as data privacy, but we are seeing such an increase in direct consumer genetic testing. And just to you know, provide an example for our listeners, I underwent it twice last year. Um, and these sort of various different approaches to taking a closer look at our genome, they can really inform our lifestyle. But on the flip side of that, it kind of begs the question, if you knew that you were at risk for a certain disease, but at this moment in time, there isn't anything that you can do about that disease, would you want to know? Because I'll give a personal example. So I carry a mutation for the OPOE4 mutation, which means that I actually carry a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Now that's really useful for me to know in the sense of I'm aware of it, but then at the same time, at this moment in time in medicine, we know that there aren't really sort of preventative measures for Alzheimer's apart from lifestyle changes. So really, what can I do with that information right now? How information to make informed choices? It, it's really tricky. And then I also think talking about the future of medicine and personalised medicine, um, I attended a couple of events last year that really touched on this topic. And there's so much discussion on this sort of potential to actually really transform the landscape of medicine in the sense that, you know, we see hypothetically there could be a patient at home, takes a quick blood sample from their finger, sends that off and they receive a full medical profile. And that informs them of sort of whether they carry specific risks for diseases. Um, and I just think this information, there's so much that can be provided. How do you process it and how are clinicians going to use that data as well? Because whilst I've talked about the direct consumer genetic testing, of course that is that is typically something that an individual chooses to pay for um, unless it is provided by a clinician as part of their treatment plan. So it, it's really a tricky area in the sense that how do we use this information? How do we share that information specifically from the point of view of clinicians? Um, and how do we how do we sort of manage the ethical side of that as well, I suppose? But yeah, going back to the main point, the future of medicine, I personally believe in the next decade or so is going to be drastically different to what we see now. I think um, I'm really glad you both raised the, the point about data awareness. I um, edit technologies, networks, informatics community as well. So if I put my uh, information hat on, I point out an article I wrote last year, which was talking about uh, the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, which became law in Canada uh, a couple of years ago, in May 2018. Now, that law made it legal to require individuals to disclose genetic test results or to compel individuals to undergo genetic tests for any agreement or service, anything to do with housing, employment. And I think sometimes my view as a person living in um, Britain uh, forgets that, especially in, in North America, um, it's it's much more common for insurance companies to be the arbiters of who gets what healthcare. And this is the exact sort of information that they'd love to get their hands on. Um, in that article, I raised some commentary from uh, some 
medics at St. Michael's Hospital over in Canada, and they talked about the impact it might have on people, for example, uh, with Huntington's disease. Uh, Molly, as, as you raised there, your own personalised um, genetic results said you might have an increased risk of, of Alzheimer's, but for people with Huntington's, um, which is a, a, another neurodegenerative disease, um, a particular genetic result gives you a, a certain chance of having it. You will uh, experience uh, neurodegeneration and a uh, shortened lifespan. Um, generally, people with Huntington's tend to tend to have a, a lifespan to their, their 40s or 50s at most. And this kind of information, you know, if, if it gets into the wrong hands, um, it could, you know, could drastically affect people's ability to get healthcare and get insured for healthcare. Um, so I think it's absolutely going to go have to go hand in hand because, you know, that was just talking about um, genetic information. But if it becomes much more standard from an early age for people to have uh, their metabolome, their proteome sequenced and that information used to enhance their healthcare, it also comes at the risk of uh, having side effects uh, for them later in life that, that everyone needs to, to consider. So um, I think you're spot on, Molly, that it will have a, a massive change in, in 10 years' time for, for medicine, but we also need to make sure that the, the information is being safeguarded and, and looked after uh, in the correct way. But it's, it's a really fascinating area. Absolutely. And it it also extends beyond just genomics. You know, there are projects um, such as the HUPO project has the human proteome project um, in which they are essentially putting together the proteomes of large populations of people, similar to what you would see in a whole genome sequencing project. Um, and using this information to inform sort of modern medicine practice. Um, so I think as well, it, it will be quite a challenge speaking from a place of privilege, I suppose, um, but for sort of the the newer clinicians that are entering the world of medicine, I think it will be difficult to utilise that information, get to grips with that information and apply it, um, as you say, in sort of an ethical way, but also in a way that drives medicine forward, I suppose. I think touching on that as well, Molly, you said like the, the newer generation of clinicians, but I think also, you know, there's that kind of consideration of nobody likes change. And I think some some of the older clinical professionals will also, I guess, may not struggle, but like, you know, that's something that they'll need to consider that they might not have, you know, considered previously. So I think it works at both ends of the spectrum, really. If you're not kind of a, a amidst it it's like when you when you think about technology like if you know you get, gave a child from that was born in 2013 a, a tape cassette player they would think what on earth is this so I think you know that's that awareness of the technology as well that they need to consider definitely and also with the advent of technologies such as CRISPR which I know we haven't touched on particularly um here but CRISPR also has the potential to really advance personalised medicine. Um, and I would suggest to any of our listeners, we have quite a lot of content on CRISPR in the context of personalised medicine at Technology Networks. Um, it's a really, really interesting area of research and the potentials are vast. But again, it's faced with this ethical dilemma. How do you implement genome editing in a way that is safe, in a way that is applicable to all populations? Um, and in, 
in a way that is actually beneficial for people and not creating conspiracy, I suppose. Um, but I think as well, yeah, it's definitely important to mention that, that CRISPR is definitely a big part of the future of personalised medicine. Fab. Well, our listeners have got plenty, uh, plenty of reading to do. We'll drop all the links into the comments, but I think that's a pretty good place to finish. Thank you both for your contributions, folks. No problem. Pleasure as always. Thank you for having us. No problem at all. So we'll be back in a couple of Fridays time with another Opinionated Science, but wherever you're listening, please subscribe, please share our podcast and please send us comments what you think. Please don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now. Thank you.